Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about math, we're talking about how to get rid of math. I know, you know, if I was talking to my daughter, she'd be overjoyed right now. She hates math, and she's not a big fan of math just in general. We're going to be talking about how to get rid of math from games. And we're talking to Dan Peterson. Dan, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's good to be back. Yeah, man. I'm excited to have you on. This is something, you know, we bumped into each other at Dice Tower Con, hung out for a little bit, you know, kind of talked about games and industry and everything. But one of the things we talked about was math in games and how important it is just now based on where the industry is to streamline games to the point where, you know, if you can get rid of as much math as possible, your game's probably going to do better. It's going to be more streamlined. It's going to be easier to understand, easier to learn, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, this needs to be a podcast episode. And so I'm so excited to be talking to you about this today. But real quick, just in case people didn't hear you the first time you came on the show, tell me, you know, who you are, what you're doing in the industry, that kind of thing. Well, I'm Daniel Peterson. I'm the lead game developer for Mayday Games. And so the fun part of my job is that I get to work with designers, product acquisition. Um, a lot of the listeners have come up to me at conventions over the God, year or two. How long has it it's been? It's been about a year, yeah. Yeah, I've had a lot of people come up to me at the conventions and uh, say that they've listened to the podcast and start talking to me about the conversation we had. <laughs> so uh, I apologize if I forget details, but <laughs> you know, it, it's tough at you know, living in the real world than the podcast there. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's wonderful to meet with designers. And I looked at many games and uh, the f- unfun part of the job is that I also do account management for Mayday Games and anything they ask me to do. <laughs> That's right. That's one thing I've learned about a lot of people in the industry. You wear almost all the hats. It's not like, oh, I wear a lot of hats. No, I wear all the hats. <laughs> I, I wear a lot. We have a really good team. And so there's yeah. a lot of people at Mayday Games that do things, but we're still defining, uh, dividing and uh, determining who is responsible for, for what in the company. Yeah, very cool. All right, so as we get started, let's talk about when we say math in games. Let's get a, just a good working kind of what we're talking about because we're not just saying, you know, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now kind of give, give the listeners like what you really mean when you say math okay. in games. Well, um, this conversation that we're going to have is it's over the last couple of years or so, I find myself that I'm in the same conversations with designers over and over and over. And some of the topics that we seem to hit over and over and over is uh, counting. There's a lot of counting in board games that can be eliminated, and counting is not fun. We'll go into more detail. Also, there's ways to simplify the math. It's sometimes a game there's too much bean counting, accounting, upkeep, where the game really isn't fun anymore it's taking you out of the experience it's taking you out of the fun to keep track of your resource counters and what are ways that you can reduce that eliminate it so that you can keep engaged in the experience play the game and then you know just elevate the experience that's what we're looking at yeah definitely now you kind of already have started down this road but let's let's talk about why why is it so important in, in 2018, especially, and we were talking about this before the show and just kind of where the industry is now, you know, in this day and age, why is it so important to just kind of be aware of this, to be aware of how much math is in your game? Um, well, 
here's the sad truth of the industry is that there's a hundred new board games that come out every week. And as a publisher, it's getting more and more difficult for me to compete. And it's to the point now that I can't publish a good, fun, engaging game anymore. I have to make something just fantastic. It has to be a great game. And one way that we can do this is look for ways that you can streamline, simplify what you have. And that is one way to elevate your good game into great. And I, I can't compete unless I have that. It, it's it's that's where we're at as an industry. Yeah. Now, what is it about the streamlining and getting rid of some of the math that just kind of elevates it higher? Uh, it's easier to play the game. It's easier to remember the game. It keeps you engaged longer. Um, let, let me give you a good example. It was it was about a year and a half ago. I was at San Jose Proto Still. And uh, you guys probably know Chris Castanagno. I hope I pronounced that right, Chris, if you listen to the show. But uh, he had this Harry Potter game out on the table. And I admit I'm not of the Harry Potter generation. I was probably your age when Harry Potter came out, my mid to late 20s. And I, I'm, I'm of the Star Wars generation. I'm that old. So, you know, I do not have this, this great love for, for Harry Potter. Granted, it's good, but I didn't grow up with it. And so it's a game where you're running around Hogwarts and you're collecting items for your school. And I was playing with everybody at the table was of the Harry Potter generation. So after the game, everybody's just like, I love it. It's great. It's so wonderful. And it was their love for Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm like, well, I didn't, you know, you've got some problems here. And it was so funny because... At that point, people literally leaned out and you heard the, I mean, a visible or excuse me, an audible sigh of like, oh, great. What's he going to say now? So the game is that you had movement points and you had to go from one shop to the next. And what I found is that between my turns, I was counting to determine where I was going. And so what's in my head when I was playing the game was counting. Mm-hmm. And I, I know how to count, and it's not fun. I'm not a drummer, so I, I don't need to count. <laughs> and I, I've learned how to, so I'm only going to do it when, when, when I need to. But for fun, counting is not fun. So as I was discussing what was in my head and how I was bored and how I was feeling, I brought up the suggestion that what you should do is just create alleys, and each turn, players literally just choose a store that they want to go in the next alley. So all of a sudden, you know, Chris, he was awesome. He he reiterated the next day he had another working prototype down on the table and it was show it was definitely promising because it cut the game length considerably. Yeah. So instead of people counting where they were going, they're like, "Okay, I've got five choices in the next alley. Where am I going?" And by doing that, by eliminating the counting, you took out the part of the game that wasn't fun. So therefore, how much more can you put back into the game that is fun? You know, or consider Clue. We've all played Clue. I mean, what's what's fun about Clue? That you want to deduce who, what, when, where, and you want to fool your friends by you know showing them the same card over and over. So why is seventy percent of the game roll, move, and counting? Right. I mean, wouldn't it be much easier if you just went to a different room and asked the three questions? <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, you would have a game there. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that's the that's the kind of mindset that we're looking at. And interestingly enough, as I started going down that path, I saw how many places counting was involved in games that as an industry, we just kind of come to it, accept because I don't you know, it's it's but looking at it differently, you can remove that and you can reduce it. I was looking at another game where a very cool game where you had you had cards laid out in front of you and there were times where you wanted 
and a piece moved around the board from player card to player card. And there were times that you wanted things to be on your cards, another time you wanted them to repel and be on someone else's. But again, the game came down to left arrow, right arrow, then a value of eight. So between your turns, you were counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, three, four, and that's not fun. So he went at icon match. So you go to a museum, you go to a tower, whatever, and all of a sudden, I wasn't counting and I was puzzle solving. And then you could put a lot more back into the game. And even my own experience, I'm working on a game called Seven Summits by Adrian Adescu and Daryl Andrews. I hope I pronounce adrian's last name correctly they're the team that did sagrada and it's a dice drafting you know race up the seven summits of the world and it was a counting game where you bring up you draft the dice and move up six places if you had a six Mm -hmm. but the same thing happened it's interesting because i changed my perspective about counting and then i had this game under contract and i'm like oh boy (laughs) what what am i gonna do well, oddly enough, I'm one of those people that solutions come to me in my dreams. So I had a dream about it. And to play test, I just took pips and glued them onto the board. And now when you draft dice, you go to the next pip that matches. Ah, okay. So, so for example, if, if you're on a, you know, if you're on a line of one, two, three, four, five, six, and it repeats three times over, how much movement I got actually depended on where my piece was sitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I, I showed the changes to Daryl Andrews at Dice Terracon this year. He, he really liked it. Uh, you know, I contacted Adrian in Canada, and he really liked the changes. And so it's neat because that game went from a dice drafting roll and move type of game back to that puzzle solving game. Yeah, absolutely. And it gives the players choices all of a sudden, more choices than just counting, as you're saying. Right, right. Because in a game, do you want to sit there and count or do you want to pro- or do you want to be engaged in the experience? Do you want to solve problems? Do you want to overcome problems? Because what we really want in a game is we want to feel clever. Right. And counting doesn't make me feel clever. So game designers, when you're when you're playtesting, when you're looking at games, pay attention to what you're thinking. It because if what's in your head is not exciting interesting and engaging you need to play it differently another good example of changing what you're thinking look at ticket to ride for example 80 percent of ticket to ride is rummy you've got four cards on the table you're grabbing one and you're laying a set so what makes ticket to ride worth playing and rummy eh, not so much is it because what's in your head of connecting the routes the tension that someone might take your route hoping that no one messes with your corner of the of the map and that brings up an interesting point. What's in your head elevates the game experience. Yeah. So give me that experience. Remove the counting. Remove the upkeep and give me that experience. Yeah, definitely. This is actually one of the reasons I kind of started just shying away from playing D&D. I played a lot of D&D in college. I loved it. Had a lot of fun. And But as I've gotten older and more, you know, and busier and more stuff going on, there's so much counting in the game, especially in the combat. Yes. The combat takes forever because you got you know, you got all the grid movement. It's, you know, old school war game is really what it is. You got all the grid yeah. movement and all the dice and counting and, okay, I got this modifier and I get to do this and this spell does this and this over here. And it's so much just math and it takes forever. Each round, uh-huh. each turn takes forever. And so I've found myself playing RPGs that have removed all that, that got rid of the grid movement, that got rid of all the extra Ooh. modifiers and all the extra figuring stuff out and have just just kind of like get me to the story, get me to the experience, get me yes. to the narrative. You know, the combat should be supporting that. I'm not here to play to play a battle game. I'm here to play you know a story game. And so that's that's one thing I've I've noticed just in my own personal. It's like yeah, give give me less counting and let me get more to the good stuff. Yes, you bring up a very interesting point. I've had several conversations with designers. Um, rarely does a three dimensional space work hmm. in tactical war games. Yes, but that's the experience you're you're having right. and 
as you pointed out, there is a time commitment to managing that three-dimensional space. Now, one game that I think a three-dimensional space works extremely well is Black Fleet. I don't know if you've played that. Mm, I haven't played that one. That, that's a rare exception. But most of the time when you are managing a space where you're moving up, down, and things like that, you're wasting your time. Mm. So if it actually elevates the experience and you can do that in a streamlined way, go for it. If not, yank it out. Uh, there was another designer out of Florida. Uh, I think you met him, uh, Dave Jackson. He, he had a pirate game that I saw at Origins a couple years ago, and I I told him, you know, just pull the board out, I, mm-hmm. similar to what we just had here. And I ran into him about a year and a half later, and his comment was, "Well, I couldn't prove you wrong." <laughs> and I pulled the board out, and the game is much better. Yeah, I started uh, actually playing this. It's called Index Card RPG. Right, and it takes a lot of a lot of the stuff from from D anD D, but it streamlines. It takes away the the grid, takes away the board, and, it, and instead of having you know all these characters or miniatures on a on a grid, you have these index cards that have the picture of the orc or of the oh. treasure chest or whatever, and then you have okay. your character and you say, okay, I'm going to go attack the orc, and you just pick up your character and you put him on the orc. Okay, now you're engaged with the orc. That's that's it. Like I don't need that's to figure it. out. Oh, I got thirty feet of movement, or I got forty five feet of movement, and how do I? Oh, I'm one space short. So let me back up and rethink my entire turn now and take another five minutes like no i'm gonna attack the orc i pick up my character i put him on the orc card all right i'm attacking him and then you have battle See, right it's just so much that's easier. excellent um you know i've seen i've seen some of those games where a lot of them could be are you melee engaged or range engaged yep, exactly. you, you know and it sounds like this one simplified mm-hmm. it even more yeah um yeah i agree with you it, it's it's so much smoother you look at those old war games i'm old enough that i was playing war games in the in the 80s and you'd go watch a movie when your friend was taking a turn right. and then he'd watch a movie when you were taking your turn with the chits the supply lines uh and even even resolving a combat you know drms you'd roll two dice and then you'd look at my prone position my standing up by 40 feet i mean you'd have your fingers spread out through about three spreadsheets and you're sitting i'm up i'm down you're 40 it's rain okay i hit (laughs) (laughs) right all that to figure out i hit and now we gotta roll damage and now we we gotta do all this other stuff too it's not like that was the last thing that that's not fun because the math is pulling me out of the experience what i want is i want to have a very engaging light battle and speaking of war games academy games make the best ones i mean they are streamlined historical stimulators the dice is easy you roll the dice you know within one single simple glance that you hit what the results are and you move on i mean they're making board war games right yeah absolutely fabulous games i've talked to people in the past i had a a uh, guy come on the show a while back, and he said, you know, I'm an accountant by trade. I go to my job and eight to ten hours a day, I'm an accountant. When I come home, I don't want to count numbers. I want to I want to play thematic games. I want to, I want to be a you know this action hero blowing up zombies. Like that's what I want to be. And so yes. he he shies away from every every game that has any kind of like math to it or any kind of in complex math. He's, he don't want to play them. And there's a lot of people in that same boat. It's like I don't want to. I don't want to do math. I want to play a game. And so at the same time, exactly. now, there is a niche for war games. There is a niche for these types of games. And so like, we're not saying, hey, don't ever make games with, with math. And we're not saying that this is the, you can only make these kinds of games or, you know, but we're saying in general, the, where, where the industry is right now, the way yes, things are changing right and now. moving. If you want to sell any kind of like large number of games, you really need to be aware of this. Now, if you want to sell mm-hmm. 500 copies of this like super complicated math driven game, go for it. And there's, you know, you could probably have a hit every now and then because there are some euros that come out there, three hour, four hour experiences that do really well. But there are very few of those now. Like, they're yes. just not, you know, people want to play an hour, they want to play hour long games. And so the more you can stream on this stuff, the faster your game can, can play. 
you are absolutely correct. There's nothing wrong with making a game that will never be published. I, I was a musician. I wrote 40 songs, and uh, I almost got published, but that's another story. So there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, you know, create. Create and do what you're going to do. Um, but you nailed it. That's that's really what people are shying away from. Uh, another example is I, I just recently saw a pitch where you're, you're racing, so you're going from one step to the next, and if you're the first person in there, you choose which resource you have. So the majority of the game was literally just accounting, counting up or keeping track on your ticker of how much of this resource you have and how much of that. Again, guys, it's not fun. Um, take that same experience. What if I'm going into a space and I'm grabbing a Tetris shape? Mm. And if I have a space that I'm filling up, I get to choose how I fill up that space. And then at what point do I dump them for points or a reward? Yeah. All of a sudden, I've taken my accounting experience and transform that into a puzzle fun experience. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just another good way to do it. Now, all right, so you mentioned what you what you just said, the puzzle. You mentioned, you know, icon matching. Let's talk a little bit more yes. about that. Let's talk just like go a little bit more in depth with the icon matching and how it can be used to get rid of math. Uh well, break out your candy land because <laughs> icon matching, well color matching is there. Yeah. It's it's uh, Cartagena is a Cartagena is a really good classic game that has icon matching. Um, you know another way, I, I saw a game at Dice Tower Con and it was a head to head dueling game, Magic. Th- those aren't my type of games. Granted, I'm old enough that I did play Magic at the first print run and loved it. Still think it's a great game, but um, you know the amount of information that's on the cards. I mean we. As a publisher, I see that kind of game over and over and over. And something that I thought would be interesting is what if you had, like, prices that you have to pay for this attack or the Super Saigon attack or or, or a defense. So my hand was literally filled of circles, squares, triangles, or whatnot, and I laid those combos down to make the move. Because this would make an interesting decision point that... Okay, I could hit you, but if I do that, I'm giving up part of the cards that I need for a defense. Mm. Is that something that I'm willing to do? Yeah. And by doing that, the cards that you're actually playing with in the deck, you can you can alter it where you might have more triangles or things like that. But interestingly enough, you could have the cards with the information be completely streamlined to those cards themselves. Yeah. And and it would be easier to make new creatures and more monsters. And so those are the kinds of experiences that you want to look at. Those are the kind of angles that you want to look at to make your games interesting, icon matching, and simplified. Gotcha. Now what are some of the other ways you've seen or thought of as far as getting rid of math? Um, other ways is I've seen a lot of really good games where the scoring during the game takes way too long. Hmm. And so you want to uh, – one way to do it is to get scorecards that are awarded to players and then you sum scores at the end of the game. It's rarely is it a good idea to for players to know the score during the game of play yeah. because if there's, if there's a strong lead, people are going to disengage. Right. And so a lot of times the uh, first person to accomplish a, a goal or achievement gets the top score card. That's a great way to go. I think a really good example is Century Spice Road. Mm-hmm. If you look at that, the colors, it's yellow is, is literally one, it, red is two, green is three, and brown is four. And if you look at the sum of the scorecards, it completely matches that. And then if you look at your conversion cards, you know exactly the point value spread you're going to get. So, for example, the basic card that you start with where you get two yellow gem, gem, gems is worth two points. Yeah. And the double upgrade is worth two points. So, therefore, the conversions are not all the same. Mm-hmm because you're going to get a net gain of, of plus or minus. But 
without knowing that they're worth one, two, three, and four, you can still play that game and it is accessible and easy to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Like when the first time I played that game, I didn't even pick up on it the first go round. When I was just, I was like, okay, here's these colors. I'm trying to turn this color into that color, and I get these interesting trades and ratios of differences and all that. And it was it was a pretty enjoyable experience. It's not my kind of game. I'm, you know, I'm more right. of a like thematic story you know game guy. But yeah. like, like you said, if this had been that, if it had been the algorithm or the math of the game as opposed to the colors and the, you know, all that. It's like, this would have been an awful, awful, terrible yeah. game. But the way yeah. that Emerson had, had, had streamlined it, it made it so accessible and so easy just to yes. jump right in. And, you know, it, it was it's a really good game because of that. Without a doubt. Uh, that, that's one way to, to hide the uh, hide the math with, with that. Now, one thing I've been doing recently, I'm working on a space game, and it's only about an hour long game, forty five minutes to an hour is my goal. It's, it's running at about an hour, an hour and fifteen right now. I'm still trying to streamline some things. Is okay. to is to hide about half of the victory points. And so, any given time, you can kind of look around and know. All right, this person has built this many things, so they're getting pro- roughly this many points. All right, you kind of you kind of get a gauge about roughly where you are and get a you know kind of maybe what strategy you want to try for the you know the second half of the game. But then there's a whole bunch of victory point cards that are hidden and so like, people have earned them over yep. the course of the game but now they're face down and so like you can't just sit there and math out who's you know who's in the lead how many points is there right because that's, that's you know some players they, they do that right they're going to sit yes. there and they're going to min max every little point every little thing trying to come out ahead and it slows the game way way down yes and so even if Very you're only hiding so. part or half of the victory point cards or you know victory point tokens whatever i feel like even even just doing that can speed up a game to prevent that whole min maxing thing considerably um one of the first games i worked on was dead man's drawn originally it was the ios app and so my first exposure to the game was the ios app and that was actually my tool for developing mm. because i was watching the app and then writing the rule book and making sure that the physical version was fleshed out so my initial instinct is that we needed score tiles or score like dials like uh a lot of the fantasy flight games so that people could keep track of their scores or rounding total. But I found that in the physical version, once you got rid of that score that was already, that was always accessible, the game changed, the gameplay changed where all of a sudden tabletop came out where, Hey, why are you destroying my card with the cannon? John's got more cards than I do. Why, why aren't you going after him? And so interestingly enough, knowing that the exact score during the game isn't always the best idea. And I actually think it's rarely the best idea because like what you said, the time it takes to keep the running score is just takes you from the experience is distracting. And when people know where they stand at all times, people give up and you don't want people to disengage in a game. A game, the longer I've done this, the game really is like a movie Mm. and you can't slump in the middle. You have to keep your pacing tight. That's a whole other discussion, but you've really got to keep players engaged from the beginning all the way to the end. And when you start having math and upkeeping and score counting in the middle of the experience, you're pulling them out of the movie. You're pulling them out of the experience. And just like a movie, a board game is an experience. And as a publisher, I'm selling that experience and I better deliver that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that that I've run into uh, over the last year or so, and just trying different games, trying new prototypes, that kind of thing, is I've gotten away from games that have a certain number of rounds or games that you have to keep track of what round we're in. Because a lot of times people forget. They forget to, yes. to, tick the, to tick the marker up one, and they, you know, like halfway through somebody's t- turn or through a round, they go, wait, did we... Did we move it up or did we forget? And like it takes everybody out of the game. And all of a sudden, like for the next 30 seconds or a minute, they're like, wait, he did his turn and she did his. I don't, yeah. I think, I think we're on round five. 
I think we're on round five out of nine. It's like, well, crap. And it just ruins everything. And so I'm trying to do everything I can to have in-game triggers that are more than just play 10 rounds. Now, there's, there's really good ways to do it. I played Godfather, uh, the Eric Lang version, over the summer. And it had a really, yeah. really good round structure. And it made everything simple. And like it was, it was very obvious. No, you never forget what round you're in with that game. So there are definitely ways to do it well. But if, if it's one of those things that's easy to forget... Get rid of it. Get, get it out of the yeah. game. Stream on it. Figure out a better way to do it, whether it's with in-game triggers or, you know, like having a – make it more of a race or make it, you know, when this uh, resource runs out, then the game ends, you know, the, the trigger right. ends it or whatever. But figuring out anything that people are going to forget, and math is one of those things people are going to forget. Yes. You know, get rid of it in, in different ways. You know, it's interesting you bring this up because when, when we did Vice, right, we, when we were designing the play mat – it was a backer's request that there was actually a round tracker on there. And I was perplexed because when you're out of cards, the game's over. Yeah. Because, you know, it already has an automatic timer. But, um, hey, if backers want it, we're going to give it to them. <laughs> I'm sure that many people did not use that, that yeah. round tracker. Do you know tracker. what the reason? Like, why did those certain group of people want that? Uh, they just wanted to keep track of the rounds. I, I think some people's brains just work that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's that that's what's fascinating about game design also is that we're all so different we all approach yeah. the game differently that it's fascinating to see people interact with a game that you've worked on yeah definitely now any other ways you can think of to to do this better one of the first games i bought 20 something years ago of modern board gaming era was the game of to call and i know it's still out there so i'm sure that some of you have played that i haven't played that for quite a few years and i wonder if it has stood the test of time and what I mean by that is that there are there's 10 action points that I have to manage in a turn. And at this point, I'm wondering if that is too much or if that is manageable. And so I've seen a lot of games where you're, you're counting your actions, you're determining this. And man, I saw one, it was kind of interesting, where you were, you were planes were, were taking off on an aircraft carrier, doing a mission, and then they were landing. And the object of the game was to keep kind of the air traffic moving. But it just kind of fell into that point where you were counting your actions, you were trying to get the air, it was just too much math and it wasn't much fun. But again, you could go back to shapes. If you can move a shape out of the hangar and fit on the runway with the current group of planes on there, is that one way you can simplify it? Uh, size is another way that you could approach that, the size of the Ike of the, the game piece and how it fits in the space. Uh, a lot of you know, patchwork was was really inspirational for me, and several tangents that I can't even explain. But starting to look at games in shapes was was a big change in how to puzzle those shapes together. Because if something physically fits in the space, then if something doesn't physically fit in the space, you know you can't place it there. Yeah. And even that simple concept applied in game theory of how you're moving items from one step to the next step or if you're competing for a space has a huge impact on on how that plays into the game and you eliminate a ton of rules by doing that yeah definitely uh, one of my favorite games is baron park you know i played that one a whole bunch of times and the same kind of concept right you've, you've got this grid and you've got these shapes and you're trying to kind of math it all together but you're not you don't feel like you're doing math you know you really feel yeah. like you're building this park and like okay that's gonna fit and, and also maybe having rules in your game where people can't pick up the the piece and try to see if it fits. That's another thing that slows the game down. Like if they if they can pick uh, up every piece and it's like min again, they're back to min maxing, you know, to see does this fit exactly right? No, no, stop it. You can't do that. Either do it in your head or don't do it at all. Right. And so that's another way you can maybe put it in your rule book, uh, as far as that kind of thing. Um any other things along those lines, like things that you could just add into your rules, you know, that this is how the game's supposed to be played. And that way it, that way at least there's like a written version that says, Hey, if players start doing this 
make them stop. Like in Jamie Stegmaier in uh, with Scythe, there's like a little designer's note in there that says if a player starts to try to count up all the different things going on, all the different min-max points and all that stuff, like basically something happens, there's like a consequence for that player. Like that's a rule in the rule book. <laughs> so like if you're really annoyed with somebody at the table, you can go to the rule book and say, hey, this happens now because the designer said so. Right? And so it's not just like house rules. It's actually in the game. Anything else you've seen that, that kind of works like that? We've had a lot of these discussions when we're play testing in house. Um, we, we've seen some interesting games where you just throw cards on the table and you're trying to collect resources and stuff, kind of like a Euro dexterity game in a sense. Okay. And it all comes down to how's the puzzle, how is the pile shifted, how is that working? And a lot of times you do have to keep with the spirit of the game, yeah. and you do have to put the claws in there. For example, we have a game that we just released called Poetry Slam, and you need to come up with a rhyming couplet for someone to guess a word that you came up that you wrote. And if people can't come up with a poem, that's okay. But you want to keep within the spirit of the game where you're challenging yourself to be creative, yeah. and you're keeping that. So a lot of times you have to put that that guy clause in a game um i pantone just came out mm -hmm. is it idw did that i i play tested that before it came out and, and i cheated so i was playing with the designer and the game you're trying to use color swaths to make matches and i had luigi mm -hmm. and so i i started making jokes everything that somebody made i'm like that's luigi and pretty soon everybody <laughs> else was making jokes about luigi uh -huh. so when it came to my turn uh, I threw down a skin tone, I threw down a green hat, and I put a gold thing over his head, and they go, that's Luigi. And I said, yep, that's right, I just got five points, and Scott, I cheated. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so... You were just planting yeah, seeds in everybody's head, huh? <laughs> that's exactly what I did. It, it, was, uh, it was subliminal planting Luigi in everybody's head. Yeah. And so, you know, because of that, Scott you know, needs to add the Luigi clause that, that, you know, you really can't, you really need to stay within the spirit of the game. I mean, he kind of had this look on his face. I don't know if you know, Scott, he's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. He's come and, on the show in the past. Uh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, you need to do that for, for those guys like me <laughs> and, uh, and do that. But it's, that's kind of a different conversation. It, it's, it's, there are times that you need to, to put those in games. Yeah. Usually those are discussed by the publisher of, oh, I can I can see a can of worms here if we mm -hmm. do this. And we've rejected games because of that, because things are kind of fuzzy and they're not clear. And you've heard the quote that people win co-ops based off of the of how comfortable they feel cheating. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so, so that's always up for debate. Now, Dan, do you have any any other advice? Like anything else? Like maybe if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, "Man, my game. Maybe my game has too much counting. Maybe you know. Maybe it is hard to keep track of this <laughs> stuff." Like, what what advice would you give somebody that's kind of in that spot right now? I talk to a lot of designers. I go to a lot of conventions and, and meet with designers, and saying the same thing over and over. Some of the things that come up quite often is embracing the theme. Hmm. And so, for example, I. I was pitched a game about being a bounty hunter. So I'm thinking, great, uh, there's going to be bounties. I'm going to have specific targets. Well, unfortunately, the game just kind of ended up just being a bloodbath. Mm -hmm. yeah, you're just shooting everybody with without remorse. And um, that's okay, but don't sell me a bounty hunter game when it's just a massacre. Yeah. So like, I want to feel like times... dog running around Hawaii, you know, like going in people's houses and, and catching people that are only wearing their underwear. You know, like that's what I want. I want to yeah, I want to exactly. experience that. You know, yeah, absolutely. Keep going. I don't want to just shoot anybody that pops up for points. Right. I, I really want to have that bounty hunter experience, unless you're going to sell me a massacre experience. And interestingly enough, there's a lot of times that people will sell me an experience when they're pitching the game to me and 
I'm excited. They've mm-hmm. sold me. I, I really want this experience, and they don't deliver. Yeah. And so look, look at your games. Look at your designs. I mean, make sure that you're delivering what you're promising me. Uh, that, that's one thing. Okay, another example of a game that uh, where I was sold on the idea that it didn't deliver, I saw a worker placement game about placing ninjas, so mm-hmm. I was really excited. But unfortunately, it was just kind of a pasted-on worker placement game. Okay, I got stars here. I got this. I build up my clan, my 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 dojo um what i really wanted was that ninja experience and so the suggestion i gave the designer is make this a rock paper scissor type game that if a ninja is in a spot it can only be replaced with a ninja of this clan so therefore there was this constant taking over the areas with a different ninja coming in and if you didn't have the right ninja you couldn't take it over and so even something as simple as that can elevate the experience and if you're going to give me a theme Really give it to me. Deliver that. And so look at your games and look at how you can get more out of your design by choosing a good theme. I think that the master of choosing a good theme in this industry would be Jonathan Gilmore. Mm. Um, he gave us Jurassic Park. Anybody yep. that loves dinosaurs and wants a Jurassic Park experience, they're playing his game. Uh, he also gave us a Mad Max experience. Yep. And The Walking Dead. Yes, exactly. And uh, John is a master of choosing the right theme and teasing you with that and bringing your love for the theme out and elevating the game experience because of that. Yeah. I, I don't think anybody does it better than him. Yeah, I agree. And cool thing about Dead of Winter, we're talking about, you know, what, that is the Walking Dead experience. Like, absolutely, bar none, Walking Dead experience. And if you talk to him about it, he says, oh, yeah, that's a Euro game. Like, no, 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 it's not. No, no look at the mechanics. Look at the mechanism. It's yeah. a Euro game. You're rolling your dice. You're placing your dice. Like it is. It has all these like underlying <laughs> mathematical type of things, right? Where you're playing the odds, all these different things. But it's this extraordinarily narrative-driven story. You know, very thematic experience with with because the math is hidden. You know, you don't you, you don't notice. You don't under you don't even feel like you're doing it. And so you know, like, like you said, John is a, a brilliant expert on how to kind of uh-huh. hide the math in in the game. And bring the experience, sell us on the experience, and deliver that experience. He's He does it better than anybody else in the industry. Yeah, awesome. Well, Dan, man, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. We're about to head over into a bonus round where we're going to talk about how to pitch your game at a publisher speed dating event. This is something you go to a lot of them. I actually got to go to one in your place at Dice Tower yes. Con. You, uh, you had something come up, and so you asked me to do it for you, which is a really cool experience that yeah, I was really uh, <laughs> thankful that I got to, uh, to have. But do you have any closing thoughts, any you know, kind of last ideas as far as getting math out of games? All right. Nope, that's all I've got. Awesome. Well, man, again, really appreciate you uh, – coming on the show and good luck with everything you got going on over at mayday games thank you thanks for listening hosting for the board game design lab podcast is sponsored by quartermaster logistics the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources bonus material and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com and until next time keep designing Keep playtesting and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?